Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, ye servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of our Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is delightful. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his treasured possession. For I know that the Lord is great. Our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. He causes the clouds to rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings the wind from his storehouses. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both people and animals. He sent signs and wonders against you, Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his officials. He struck down many nations and slaughtered many kings, Zion, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kings of Canaan. He gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his people, Israel. Lord, your name endures forever. Your reputation, Lord, through all generations. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nation are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Indeed, there is no breath in their mouths. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. House of Israel, bless the Lord. House of Aaron, bless the Lord. House of Levi, bless the Lord. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He dwells in Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Amen. Just by way of announcement and some business, after the service, we need some help moving all of the chairs. This week we have some electrical work taking place, um, so we need the chairs moved out into the foyer and fellowship hall uh, in stacks of seven, if you would. Um, that would be awesome. So last week, Pastor Jeremiah continued our series in Exodus by looking at Pharaoh's heart, specifically the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. See, Pharaoh was a guy who was viewed by all of Egypt as a god. He himself viewed himself as a god. Um, in a culture of many gods, polytheist, polytheistic culture, many deities. Uh, but he was certainly, without question, the most powerful man in, in Egypt. And in the Exodus narrative, we often view him as one of the main focal points of the story. Um, the antagonist, the bad guy. But this story isn't one where Pharaoh is the main character. As a matter of fact, neither Pharaoh nor Moses, not Aaron, not the Egyptian magicians, not even the Israelite people are the main characters of the story. This is a story of one true God. And today we're going to look at a small portion of this story. This portion, highlighting nine plagues, describes an epic battle between two 
powerhouses. See, I've always been a big sports fan, huge sports fan. I love watching sports, but I don't know if there's a, a better game to watch than a rivalry game. There's not a better fight to watch than a rivalry fight. Think U of M versus MSU. Think um, Ali and Frazier, Mayweather and Pacquiao. The greatest. Boxing is great. Football's great. All of these sports are great. But personally, I got to witness the greatest rivalry in the history of rivalries in some of the best years of my childhood. See, I was a huge WWF fan. <laughs> and I grew up in the golden age called the Attitude Era and got to witness some of the greatest wrestling matches, some of the greatest WrestleMania matches between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> Don't tell Jeremiah I talked about the WWF on stage. Those were some of the greatest battles in history. And don't get me talk. Don't say, oh, Hulk Hogan, get out of here. <laughs> but even as great as it was watching Stone Cold and The Rock go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. As cool as it is to watch the old re replays of Ali and Frazier, Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather, none of those battles come close to touching the epic battle we're going to look at today. But our battle today isn't against, isn't between Pharaoh and Moses. It isn't between Aaron and the Egyptian magicians. It isn't even between God and Pharaoh. Our battle today that we're going to talk about is between God and Satan, the creator of the universe versus the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And this supernatural battle that we're going to talk about today does take place in our natural world, and we do see it play out through Aaron, Moses, Pharaoh, Egyptian magicians, and the Israelites. But ultimately, the purpose of the plagues was for everybody, those there present, everybody to hear in the years to follow, and, and us who read the account today, the purpose of the plagues was for everybody to know that Yahweh is the one true God and that there is no other God like him. And on our journey today, we're gonna, we want to view this story, this battle, with that in mind. Through our exploration into this battle, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to use a framework by a uh, theologian and author, his name's Tim Chester, um, where he says this is a story of God as mighty creator, God as holy judge, and God as gracious savior. But before we get too much further, let's pray. God, that is who you are. You are mighty creator, holy judge, and gracious savior. You are the one true God. God, as we dive into the text today, as we dive into your word, 
just pray that you open hearts. I pray that you remove distractions. God, I pray that you help us to zero in what you have for us as we look back on these few chapters in Exodus. As we hear your story in Exodus so that we can better understand our story in Exodus. Help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding and our view of you as mighty creator, holy judge, and gracious savior. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be primarily in Exodus 7 through 10. But we're going to highlight spots, just like we've been doing, because this, is this isn't a verse-to-verse study in Exodus. We'd be here for 10 years, um, or like they were following this, 40 years, wandering through the book of Exodus. We don't want to do that. Um, but before any of the plagues take place, we read what God says to Moses in Exodus 7, 5. He says, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. And again, in the middle of the, this battle between God and Satan, God gives Moses a message to deliver to Pharaoh in Exodus nine fourteen. He says, For this time I am about to send all my plagues against you, your officials, and your people. Then you will know there is no one like me on the whole earth. So as we take a closer look at this epic battle between God and Satan that takes that takes place like we said Moses, Pharaoh, Aaron, Egyptian magicians in this series of plagues, we'll go on a bit of a deep dive ourselves into each of the plagues. But also some of the ways through the plagues that God may have been demonstrating his power over the gods of Egypt, uh, lowercase g. But just as a quick aside, we, we, are, we may be speculating just a smidge on this. Although most scholars make this connection between the plagues and specific gods of Egypt, because of the polytheistic culture and how their, the Egyptian pantheon changed over time, in addition to Scripture not explicitly saying, oh, I'm going to send frogs because of this God. We want to be careful not to look too much into that. We, we do believe, and scholars do believe, that God was using these plagues to de-deify, if you will, the Egyptian pantheon. Um, but let's dive in. Today we're going to look at the nine plagues, the first nine. There are ten um, but the tenth one is for some other time, for a few weeks down the road. Uh, these take place through, like I said, several chapters, chapters 7 through 9. So we're going to do a little bit of skimming. Uh-oh. Uh, we're going to start by looking at the plagues themselves. Some patterns we see, what they are, and the Egyptian gods that God may have been demonstrating his power over. And then we'll specifically dive into, because the series is called Our Story in Exodus, uh, we'll dive into what does this mean for us. The first nine plagues can be broken into and studied as three cycles of three plagues. In each cycle, Moses says to Pharaoh, he brings a warning to Pharaoh for the first two plagues, and then God just deploys the third plague. 
Um, the first cycle is in Exodus 7 and 8. The second cycle can be found in 8 and 9. And the third cycle of plagues are accounted for in Exodus 9 and 10. So like we mentioned, for the first two plagues in each cycle, Moses brought, a Pharaoh, brought Pharaoh a warning. In each warning, God would say to Moses, get up in the morning, go to Pharaoh and say this. This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you do, will not let my people go, insert plague description here. He doesn't say that. We'll get there. And then we'll get into, as we break down these cycles, we'll get into Pharaoh's responses. So the first cycle, the first three plagues, turning the Nile into blood, a swarm of frogs, and then turning dust into gnats. Um, we'll brush over each cycle, so I'll let you know where we'll be at each time. And like I said, the first cycle is Exodus 7 and 8, starting in verse 14. Our first plague contains a warning. Let the people go, or God will turn the Nile River into blood. The fish will die, the water will stink, and the Egyptians will be unable to drink from it. But if you take a look at verse 19, it reads, So the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch, it over the, stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, canals, ponds, and all through their water reservoirs, and they will become blood. There will be blood all throughout the land of Egypt, even in wooden and stone containers. So although we read this as turning the Nile River into blood, verse 19 indicates that it wasn't just the river, but all of the water. Pharaoh didn't release the people, and the water turned to blood. But this didn't change Pharaoh's heart because his Egyptian... Uh, magicians could do the same thing. So let's talk about those magicians for a second. See, and we'll actually lump some of the, the way that we view the Egyptian gods here as well. See, remember the battle here, who's our battle against? God and Satan. Yes. So the battle here and the elements of the battle are either works of God or works of exactly. So that being said, the Egyptian magicians could duplicate some of the plagues, but they couldn't eliminate the plague. So they, too, could turn water into blood, but they couldn't reverse it. They couldn't get rid of the problem. Only God could do that. Seven days later, God gives Moses the go-ahead for a second conversation with Pharaoh. The second plague, the second warning, this time a swarm of frogs. The frogs invaded all of Egypt, outdoors, indoors, everywhere, frogs. Who likes frogs? All right, there's a few hands up. None of you like frogs that much. Gwen, I know you love frogs, but like they're everywhere, like in the bathroom, in the kitchen, under your like blankets, in your bedroom, everywhere, frogs. So this time, Pharaoh responds. He says, okay, Moses, I don't like frogs at all. This is gross. This is creepy. Can't sleep. Lots of ribbiting going on. So Pharaoh says, I'll let your people go if you get rid of the frogs. Seems like a good thing. We're only two plagues into this thing, and Pharaoh's starting to get it. 
So the people go, the frogs disappear, and the second the frogs are gone, Pharaoh says, never mind, get back here. Didn't release them. Which brings us to the end of our first cycle, a plague without warning. The plague here didn't come with a warning. God simply told Aaron to lift your staff and the dust will become gnats. And here we get the magicians again. The Egyptian magicians show back up. But this time they couldn't duplicate the plague. And their response, if we look at chapter 8, verse 19, this is the magician's response to Pharaoh. It says, this is the finger of God, the magician said to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's magicians were the first Egyptians... Magicians and Egyptians shouldn't be used, by the way, side note, that much, that frequently with somebody who's got a speech impediment. But they were the first Egyptians to acknowledge who God was. Acknowledge there's something different about this God, Moses, or Pharaoh. This is the finger of God. Note, and we'll actually come back to this a little later, that in the first cycle, God used Aaron and his staff as the agent to deploy the first, all three of these plagues. Uh, just summarizing real quick, there are a few Egyptian gods that are associated with this first cycle, um, with the blood, the frogs, and the gnats, that God may have been demonstrating his power against, with the Nile uh, turned into blood or the water turned into blood. Scholars point to Hopi, the god of the Nile, Isis, and Knum. With the frogs, they look to Heket, who's the goddess of birth with a frog head. And then with the gnats, they look at Set, who's the god of desert storms. So on to the second cycle. We're looking here at Exodus 8 and 9. Again, we get the first two plagues with some warnings. Moses says, Pharaoh, let the people go so they can worship, or we're gonna say, there's going to be a swarm of flies everywhere in the land of Egypt, except for Goshen, where, which is where the Israelites lived. That was the part of Egypt where they lived. So Pharaoh says, yeah, okay, you guys, no. He says, no. So the flies came. Pharaoh relents, says they can leave, but again, just like the frogs, after the flies are gone, so as his word, get back here. Moses goes again back to Pharaoh with a warning. Let my people go. The Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship or death of the livestock. Horses, donkeys, camel, herds and flocks, everything will die. But not the livestock of the Israelites. Big surprise, Pharaoh says no. Again, Exodus 8, verses, verse 4, we have a distinction between God's people and Pharaoh's people. Sorry, I think I said, I messed it up. 9-4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all the Israelites' own will die. A distinction between 
God's people and the Egyptian people. He didn't let the people go. Then, as with all three cycles, the plague with no warning. Moses went to Pharaoh and threw furnace soot in the air. God told him, hey, you're going to go get this furnace soot. Go to Pharaoh, throw it in the air. And it will become like a fine dust that will give all the people and animals in Egypt boils. Just kind of a cool little side note and a testament to how God can work in our lives. We're only a few chapters from a fear-driven Moses that said, God, they're not going to listen to me. God, I can't talk good. God, he's making all these excuses. I mean, he didn't, he didn't even want to speak to Pharaoh. I mean, shoot, he didn't even want to speak to the Israelites. And now, Exodus 9.10 says that Moses took the soot before Pharaoh and then just threw it in the air, causing the boils. When I read that, I thought of my two-year-old nephew who... Like, have you guys ever told a, a young child like that not to throw a ball at you? Because they don't listen. And they throw it right at you. Two-year-olds have a surprising strength, by the way. Do you, I, I think that Moses, just like my little two-year-old nephew Jackson, when, when I say, Jackson, don't you throw that ball at me, he gets a little smirk. You guys know the smirk. That's why you're laughing. I think Moses probably had that same little smirk when he's got this soot. Do you think Pharaoh looked at him and said, don't you throw that soot in the air? (laughs) Boils. See, that's the confidence God can give us if we open up our hearts and hands to what he calls us to. The man who didn't even want to say a word to people who believed in the same God is now throwing soot, causing boils to the most powerful man in Egypt. Anyway, here the magicians are back on the scene. But only this time it says that they couldn't stand before Moses because they had, a scripture. My, the CSB says, festering boils. That sounds terrible. That's uh, verse 9, 10. So they took the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it toward heaven, and it became festering boils on the people. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Still, Pharaoh doesn't let his people go. Doesn't let God's people go. The Egyptian gods here that are associated with the second cycle, we have um, with the flies, Ray, a sun god. Um, what is it? Uachit. Don't, don't say that too fast. Represented by flies. Livestock is Hathor, goddess with a cow head, or Apis, bull god of fertility. Boils, Sekhmet, goddess with power over disease. Sunu, the pestilence god. And Isis, again, um, the healing goddess. So now for the third cycle, we're in Exodus 9 and 10. Just like with the first two, we have two plagues with a warning. The first one, the plague was a hailstorm throughout all of Egypt. Pharaoh, let my people go so they can worship me. Or you're going to experience not just like a hailstorm, but the worst hailstorm that you've ever experienced in Egypt since you've become a nation. Once the hailstorm comes, 
Pharaoh says, go, get out. Moses says, I know that you and your officials still don't fear the Lord God. But once we leave the city, the storm will cease. When they left the city, the storm stopped. But did Pharaoh keep his word? No, because he's not wised up yet. Same thing, a warning, let them go or the land will be filled with locusts. They don't let them go, the locusts come. Pharaoh relents, as he's done for a few plagues here now. Says, okay, here, this time, the able-bodied men can go. That's who you want, that's how you start a nation, with able-bodied men, that you guys can go. But nobody else. The locusts disappear, Pharaoh changes his mind. Which leads us to the last plague we're going to look at today. Darkness. Darkness came and nobody could see anything. Nobody moved for three days. Except for the Israelites who still had light. Pharaoh says, okay, all the people can leave, but you have to leave your livestock. Moses says, no deal. Pharaoh kicks him out. Says, the next time you show up here, Moses, the next time I see you, you're going to die. And again, with the confidence that God gave Moses, he drops a baller line on Pharaoh. He says, I will never see your face again. What a line. Third cycle, Egyptian gods, we have uh, with the hail was Nut, the sky goddess, Osiris, god of crops and fertility. With the locusts, we get Nut and Osiris again. And then darkness, we have Ray, the sun god. Horus, the sun god, and then Nut and Hathor, sun and sky goddesses. So remember, all of these plagues are to distinguish God, Yahweh, as distinct, unique, and supreme over all the Egyptian gods. I am the one true God. There is no other God like me. Our series, our story in Exodus, implies that it has something to do with us. And using, again, this lens of Chester's, we talked about at the beginning, where God is mighty creator, holy judge, and gracious savior. Uh, we're going to look at a little bit at what that has to do with us. But one minute, because I'm parched. Chester notes that God here, to start, is using the powers of creation. The Lord is a mighty creator. He's using weapons that only the creator can use. The plagues come from various sources. We have um, dust, we have water, we have sky. And only the creator can mobilize creation against Pharaoh. And that's just what we see Yahweh doing. But, and I, I made sure to highlight it because there are several times where God would deploy a plague on the Egyptians... But his people, the Israelites, wouldn't be touched, wouldn't be hindered. And earlier I mentioned that we'd come back to it. Aaron is the agent for the first cycle. God would be the direct agent for the flies and the livestock. And then Moses would be the agent that God would use to deploy the rest of the plagues. God uses the tools he wants through whomever he wants, whenever he wants, in order to execute his sovereign 
purposes. And by the end of the first nine plagues, there is no doubt God is mighty creator. He is also the holy judge. One of my favorite card games, Uno. It's simple. You can combine a bunch of decks so everybody can play. And it's easy enough that even a monkey can figure it out. And when you're playing Uno, anybody, uh, you guys all know, anybody not ever play Uno? Okay, good. We've all, we all know what I'm talking about here. There's just something about dropping that one of those powerful cards right at the right time. Have you ever ended a round with a wild draw four? That's like, I will never see your face again. <laughs> For my studies this week, I didn't realize, I never noticed in all my years of hearing and reading this story, the correlation between these plagues and Uno. <laughs> but on top of throwing the dry not, draw nine plagues card that God dropped on Egypt, God had systematically unraveled everything that was life in Egypt. Egypt was a thriving country, ton of money, lots of food. The Nile brought tremendous wealth and resources to the nation. Major source of water, food, and commerce. Their livestock was income, was food. Light is light. You need light. God had thrown the most powerful reverse card in the history of anything right into Pharaoh's lap, systematically unraveling everything that made Egypt the powerhouse of a nation that it was. Everything that made Pharaoh the God that he claimed to be and made Egypt the power, gone, reversed. God told Pharaoh to let his people go so they could worship him, or there would be consequences. Pharaoh would face God's judgment. This ultimate reverse card should bring one thing to mind. God is mighty creator and he is holy judge. See, God demands obedience of all. He created us to live in obedience and in reliance upon him. When we rebel and do our own thing, when we obey only ourselves, when we rely only on ourselves, we make a God of ourselves and God tells us that there are consequences for that sin. Paul writes in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. A few chapters earlier than that, in Romans 3, he writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. According to a fancy theological dictionary I have in my office that's thicker than my Bible, I'm told that the word justified, we are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, has two parts to it. First, it means that we are reconciled to God. It says we, it's the pardon of all sins, the reconciliation to God, and the end of his enmity and Wrath. And then secondly, the second part to justification is it's the bestowal of righteous status and title to all the blessings promised to the just. So according to Paul, if we have 
that redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. We're reconciled to, or which just fancy way of saying, being brought back into relationship with God. And we're made righteous, meaning we won't have to encounter that wrath that Pharaoh encountered. We don't get that for being good. We don't get that for following the rules. We don't get that for simply showing up to church. We only get that through Jesus Christ. In their book, uh, or in his book, The Message of Exodus by uh, Alec Mortar, he writes, in regard to the disobedience of God, the immediate and basic answer to why God strung judgment along through ten plagues is that in the eyes of the Lord, disobedience is as greatly abhorred as obedience is prized. Then he writes, if, as is indeed the case, the primary characteristic of the Lord's people is to obey what he's revealed, then correspondingly disobedience to the revealed word, in our case the Bible, is the primary offense. If the primary characteristics of the Lord people, the Lord's people is to obey what he's revealed to them, then disobedience to the revealed word is the primary offense. And then in summation, he concludes with the plagues reveal his love of obedience and his revulsion from disobedience. And Pharaoh experienced that firsthand. And after the nine plagues, he was just beginning to see how God treats sins. So we noticed this dichotomy when we read those verses in Romans. See, we have God. God is just. And there are certainly consequences to sin. But there's also a whole heap of talk about grace and mercy and redemption and justification through Christ. See, God certainly functions as holy judge. But he also functions as gracious Savior. We've already mentioned, we've already looked at that in Exodus when we said sometimes there would be a plague deployed on the Egyptians but not on the Israelites. There is a distinction made between God's people and Pharaoh's people. Why does God allow them to be unscathed by some plagues but then still impacted by others? The answer lies in a uh, passage of Scripture Pastor Jeremiah talked about, quoted last week, and explored last week when we dove into Pharaoh's hard heart, Romans 9, 16. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Paul's conclusion is one that we should draw to. Salvation doesn't depend on our effort or our desires. Uh, later in chapter 9 of Romans, Paul would write, And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? On us, the ones he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. What if God hardened Pharaoh's heart? What if God protected his people, but some, but not all of the plagues? What if God allowed whatever terrible circumstance you faced in your life, what if he did that so that we, the objects of his mercy, might know the riches of his glory? Through the first nine plagues, we see God as gracious Savior 
And as gracious Savior, we get to, as objects of his mercy, experience Christ. The plagues show that, yes, God is a just and holy judge. Yes, he is a mighty creator. But sin cannot go unpunished and consequence free. He is a gracious Savior. So not to skip too far ahead in this Exodus series. I'm going to steal someone's thunder a little bit. Um, but Pharaoh ends up letting the people go. God saves them. Don't tell Pastor Jeremiah I spoiled a, a sermon. But, I mean, and I don't want any angry emails about spoiling it either. It was written a few thousand years ago. You've had your chance. It's, it's not like I told you Indiana Jones dies at the end of the new movie. He doesn't. It was a joke. It was a joke. Golly, it came out like a week ago. These plagues didn't primarily point to God's condemnation, but to the Israelites' salvation, and then ultimately to our salvation in Christ. In another book about Exodus I read by a couple of guys, Philip Riken and R. Kent Hughes, they point out that Exodus was God's triumph over Satan, but it was not his greatest triumph. God made his supreme demonstration over po of power over Satan through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God would, through the death and resurrection of Christ, exhibit the simultaneous action of being mighty creator, holy judge, and gracious savior. When Jesus would bear our sin and shame, when he would experience the judgment that we deserve, so that through the resurrection, he would bring salvation and life, eternal life, to those in Christ. In our world today, you can claim to be a Christian and have that, whole, that mean a whole heap of different things. You can claim to be a Christian when, say, you believe in God, but not have it change, have God change any part of your daily life. If God calls us to obedience and reliance upon Him, today, in our world today, there's a belief system that says that we can believe in God, but not live like it. We can believe in God, but not obey Him or rely on Him. Instead, this belief system would be like us doing whatever we want, obeying only ourselves, relying only upon ourselves, not engaging with the body of Christ, not serving your local church, and not seeking God in any real way day to day. But to say that you're in Christ, you can't confuse, water down, or downplay that. And as we today meditate on this epic battle between God and Satan, an epic triumph of God, may we reflect on our part in the story, that, that we rest in and rely on the same mighty creator, holy judge, and gracious savior that the Israelites did through their story in Exodus all those years ago. And may we come to the same conclusion that there is one true God. He's the main character in Exodus. He's the main character in our stories. As we seek to live a life in Christ. Let's pray. God, we're grateful, and we, we sit here in awe of who you are, a mighty creator, a holy judge, and a gracious 
Savior. God, I just thank you for who you are. God, help us, each one of us, to really sit in and, and ruminate on who do we say you are and how does our relationship with you impact our daily lives. Help us to seek to live a life in Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty.